that one man's doppelganger is another man's guardian spirit. You know, it's just the fact of it yeah. looking like him that makes it a monster in his in his house. Yeah. Welcome to Black Box Poetry. I'm joined here tonight by my two co-hosts. Introduce yourselves, guys. I'm Sean. Uh, I study Victorian literature, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm Isaac. I'm a poet and translator of Russian and Ukrainian literature. And I'm Anastasia. I study late 20th century American poetry in Rochester, New York. So, with that, guys, what do we have to say about poems of address. What does that even mean? Quick definition. Go, Isaac. In a poem of address, you've got two elements, the sort of basic framework of this microclimate or microcosmos that we're living in tonight, or you've got a speaker and an addressee. Okay. So two, like a person speaking and saying something to another person or another entity. Excellent. Now what? So, I mean, like, you can draw a lot out of that opposition. And I feel like when I try to get people started reading poetry, um, one of the questions that I'll often ask them the first time that you run through a poem is just at a very simple level, like, where are we standing? What are we doing? What are we wearing? Et cetera. And often the relationship that's implied between the speaker and the addressee, um, whatever kind of, you know, thing the addressee is will tell you a lot about what's going on in the poem. Um, it often becomes the sort of uh, the first like sort of nucleus that you sort of build the build your understanding of the poem around. That's not how nucleuses work, but I, I want to be forgiven. I'm going to use a weird science metaphor too. Uh, mine's from cosmology. Cosmologists have the idea of the anthropic principle. So when they're trying to reason deductively about intelligence in the universe they treat the fact that they're sitting there reasoning as intelligent beings as the key data point we don't really know how much intelligence there is in the universe outside of that narrow sphere but that narrow sphere does give us some opportunity to draw conclusions I think you can say a similar thing about the bare framework of a poem of address and the way it's elaborated, that the speaker and the speaker's approach to the addressee are the principal way that the poem can explore itself and constitute itself. You could describe it as the speaker is being backformed by approaching the addressee or the addressee is being mapped in terms of its relative position to the speaker. But the mere presence of these two entities is a data point. So I think what we're working with, poems of address have kind of a speaker, like most poems do. But that speaker, the, the, the person or the entity that the speaker is speaking to is pretty clearly defined. Um and that relationship, that tension point between who is the thing that is being addressed, the addressee and the speaker, um, gives us the opportunity to start really investigating what that relationship is and kind of come up with a cosmogony, as it were, 
of how that kind of fits of how they kind of relate to one another. Does that sound about right? You could almost compare it to what we were talking about in the persona poems episode where we were talking about Ann Carson's idea of triangulation in love poetry, where you have the lover and the beloved, and then a third point, which charts the distance between them that makes a romantic or lyrical connection difficult. You could say there's a similar effect where you have these two points with relative positions in a poem of address. So I think we're doing, maybe it's worth saying, we're we're going to read some poems in chronological order because we kind of think that there might be something to gain by thinking about how address changes over time. And I think one of the things that goes with that is that um, address, like a lot of really basic linguistic functions, is still completely saturated by, you know, social context, literary convention, cultural expectation and norms and so on. Um, And I think we'll see that as we look at these three poems. So I brought a, a poem by John Donne called The Sun Rising. Busy old fool, unruly son, why dost thou thus, through windows and through curtains, call on us? Must to thy motions lovers' seasons run? Saucy pedantic wretch, go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices. Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Love all alike, no season knows, nor clime. No hours, days, months which are the rags of time. Thy beams, so reverend and strong, why shouldst thou think? I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou left'st them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawst yesterday, and thou shalt hear, all here in one bed lay. She's all states and all princes I, nothing else is. Princes do, do but play us compared to this. All honors mimic all wealth alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, and that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed thy center is, these walls thy sphere. So one of the things I want to observe just at the start is that in this poem, Dunn is addressing the sun, um, and it's specifically in Obad, which is a poem uh, of lovers parting at dawn. But part of the game of the poem is that rather than the lovers parting, Dunn is trying to basically insult and berate and chide the sun for interfering with his sort of like astonishingly wonderful night of lovemaking. And over the course of the poem, he has to keep updating and adjusting the argument that he's making to the sun. So we get addressed throughout the poem, but the premises of the address keeps shifting. Initially, He's sort of saying, you know, like, why are you here? Go away. Like, I I can't be bothered with this. Like, I don't even want you to be here. By the end of the poem, the gambit has shifted to the point where he's saying, um, no, you are in this room. And in fact, this room is the entire cosmos. So the sun is like the sun at the center of a Ptolemaic universe, but the outer limits of the crystalline spheres are the walls of the bedroom. So... The sun has been, in some sense, controlled or defeated by this 
like really weird fantasy where he says, you know, thy name, th- thy thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. In other words, oh, you're tired because you're so old. You're weak because you're such an old man. Well, if you want an easy job, you can just warm the entire world in the form of me and my beloved. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed thy center is, these walls thy sphere. Um, The stakes have been elevated to an absurd extent, and there's a kind of victory being declared here, but it's a victory that's completely ludicrous and is clearly constructed on all of the failures of the earlier premises of the poem. That early frustration in Dunn's attempt to confront the sun or subvert the sun or out-argue the sun is something that the reader is actually able to experience through this lovely fourth line. Must to thy emotions, lovers, seasons run, even when Dunn is attempting to challenge the sun for scripting his experience when he doesn't think it has any right to. He's using a solar or astronomical metaphor. He says, lovers, seasons. What this reminds me of is in Heart of Darkness, Conrad describes a piece of machinery lying beside a path in the jungle and the machinery corroding and rusting and perishing in the moisture of the jungle is described as rotting. Not only is the machine literally rendered useless by the jungle, but the metaphor that describes that process is an organic metaphor, a jungle metaphor. So the jungle wins twice, as my high school English teacher so memorably put it, and forced (laughs) me to remember it to this very day, by forcing the protagonist to use its metaphor, the jungle wins twice. And in the same way, the sun is winning twice in this first stanza. And so as the reader, you get that same frustration that Dunn has. And in the same way, your high school English teacher won twice. Saucy, pedantic wretch. <laughs> Sorry. That was, that was perfect. <laughs> to get to loop back around to the, the main thrust of your argument, which I find very persuasive, it's precisely by using the framework of address that Dunn is able to make this absurd gambit he's playing with the sun convincing enough to the reader that we're prepared to go along with it. He doesn't hide or blunt any of the absurdity. He just makes it palatable to the reader by defining the scope of this universe of speaker and addressee, by making it so subjective that this speaker's experience of the sun within the room is the entire empirical existence of the sun, that those are treated as interchangeable. It's because this is a poem of address that Dunn is able to have this victory to the extent that he has it. Bear with me, but it actually kind of, the way you just phrased that, Isaac, for some reason made me think of um, why shows like Gilmore Girls are so successful, right? Because ultimately it becomes about the banter between these two polar, these two like polarities, And that's Mm -hmm. what creates the universe of the show. The show itself isn't that interesting. It's really mundane, right? They go to dinner. There's like 
parents involved. The wallpaper is interesting, I suppose. But really, it's about the rhythm of addressing one person and addressing another and the way that those dynamics change. And what's really interesting about the way Dunn pulls this together, right, is we do ultimately get, he literally turns it into a small universe in the last stanza. It doesn't start with, with that way. I think it's important that it starts where it's really kind of, um, it's very silly, but it's also very conversational, right? Saucy, pedantic, wet, wretch, go of chide, late schoolboys and sour apprentices. That, that fact that it's so highly conversational um, and not so grandiose is exactly what kind of pulls you in at first. I think it's a really fantastic point. And I feel like part of what that gets at is how it's not just conversational, but it's also like Gilmore Girls or like the sort of like Howard Hawks comedies, like His Girl Friday that it's drawing on. There's something frantic about the style of conversation where the conversation is going so fast and it's updating itself so quickly that it, it like, like, one draws a huge amount of attention to the sort of like like verbal acuity and and sort of like like wittiness of the people, but also it wounds up becoming the sort of um, like show of strength. It it like you know a lot more about the characters' capacity by their constant need to sort of update the terms on which they're engaging with people than you do by actually caring about any specific thing that they say as like a permanent expression of who they are or what they believe. Um, and there is something really comedic about this that I think has to do with that style of like really ping pong rapid dialogue. Well, in changing the dynamics, I think exactly what you were saying, Sean, that it's it's not about what's being said. It's about how you expect the thing that's being said is going to return back to you. Um, so moving into the second stanza, which we haven't spent a ton of time on thinking in terms of thy beams so reverend and strong, why shouldst thou think? There is a moment there where you almost want to take him seriously, um, that it is kind of reverent, um, that he's kind of changing like changing tactics, shifting, shifting modes. Like, all right, that didn't work. It didn't work when I called you a wretch, so now I'm going to try this one. Nope, that's not working either. All right, here we go. So you kind of get that sense that he's, he's kind of constantly playing to see, is this, is this the boundary? Is this the, pi- the, the ping point? Is this what's going to come back? Yeah. And the, uh, Sean, perhaps you can give me a sense of this. How relevant would the beam pun, the sunbeam versus a beam in a structure, how, uh, how on the tip of the tongue would that pun be for someone who spoke the English that Dunn spoke? I assume it would be completely on the tip of their tongue. You'd have to you'd have to check with the the Oxford English Dictionary to be sure, but there is, I think, a certain amount of of sort of verbal playfulness that's kind of foundational to this. I'm thinking about um, when it says, "Thou son art half as happy as we, and that the world's contracted thus." It feels like that's that's saying both contracted in the sense of like made smaller, like we've agreed that the, the world is just this bedroom, but also contracted in the sense of like, we have an agreement. Um, and the agreement I think is, you know, implicitly that he is um, in some sort of, if not marriage, then something that looks like marriage with another person where the son is isolated. The son is completely alone. Um, so I, I, I feel like one of the things that, that often happens is on a line by line basis, there can be these kind of extra meanings or, or excessive meanings that, the poem is throwing off so quickly that you can't quite get a hold of them. The contracted 
pun is very important at the at the risk of backtracking what that sends me to is these uh this third line well we have to read the second line for it to make sense why dost thou thus line break through windows and through curtains call on us the fact that the verb is at the end of that third line i think serves to isolate the why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains that could almost function as a semantically complete utterance because of the way the line breaks work. He's also got um, one of the things I really enjoyed listening to when you were reading, Sean, um, was the way sauced yesterday and at the end of the second stanza, how much that worked. Um, because whether both the when you go up a few more a few lines earlier, whether both the Indias of spice and mind be where thou lefts them or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawst yesterday, and thou shalt hear all here in one bed lay. There's a funny way where the sauced actually sounds like sauce, like cooking. Um, and the Indias of Spice and Mine, right, gives us that moment where we do kind of get to play with that kind of idea of what, what's kind of being mixed or, or like kind of cooked together, um, which obviously my favorite line uh, riffs on the first stanza. So there is this kind of sense of um, reforming uh, even some of the things that are pre-existing in the poem that we've been given earlier, right? So like the kings keep coming back. We get the kings moving through the whole poem. We get princes the whole way through. These are things that keep coming back in kind of new ways when we change the points of contact, the nodes between the addresser and the addressee. The other thing I want to mention about this poem, which I think is hilarious and fascinating, is uh, the extent to which the beloved completely falls out of the picture for long stretches of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, Isaac was talking about Anne Carson's idea from her brilliant book, Eros the Bittersweet, that there's a sort of triangular relationship to Eros where there is the speaker, the beloved, and then a third person or term which sort of marks the distance and one of one of the things that makes this poem so sort of delightfully special is that the addressee is the son and the third term is the beloved <laughs> and that's so backwards and there's moments in the poem where that sort of comes to the surface so like she's all states and all princes i nothing else is and then he updates that to say, princes do but play us compared to this, all honors mimic, all wealth alchemy. And so initially what he's saying is she's all states, all princes I, which is like emphasizing this like invidious distinction between them. He's the one who has agencies. She's this sort of like majestic but fundamentally inert thing. And then he has to quickly update that and say, real world princes are imitating both of us because we're both like princes. I'm sorry, honey. Like, you know, <laughs> it's a very sort of like weird poem for how completely absent the beloved, who's in some sense the sort of supposed object of the poem is for, for like vast stretches of it. It's hilarious that you used object to describe that because we would use that in a very pejorative way with the feminist reading of the poem, but here the issue was that she's not being given her due as the object of the poem. <laughs> and the way I would paraphrase that would be as the subject of the poem, which is also a pun. Yeah. Right. It's just, the, the this poem is making us reenact this uncomfortable aspect of it while we're talking about it. It's, it's yeah. hilarious. 
when I read these as like an 18 year old, they did not realize how funny they are. And they're, they're all hilarious. They're (laughs) so funny. And they're so, God, they're so tight. Christ. But wait, guys, can I do, can I do the pun? Can I do it? Yeah, do it. Are we done? No, they're. Oh, God. Weirdly. While you said, can I do the pun, it was the only 30 seconds of my life in which I did not have that pun ready to go. I was like, what pun? Surely this will be an untold surprise. (laughs) Nothing has prepared me for this. Definite article, man. Read my cues. (laughs) (laughs) I do believe that means we are on to John Keats. To sleep. O soft embalmer of the still midnight, shutting with careful fingers and benign our gloom-pleased eyes embowered from the light, enshaded in forgetfulness divine, O soothest sleep, if so it please thee, close in the myth, in midst of this thine hymn my willing eyes, or wait the amen, ere thy poppy throws around my bed its lulling charities. Then save me, or the past day will shine upon my pillow, breeding many woes. Save me from curious conscience that still lords its strength for darkness, burrowing like a mole. Turn the key deftly in the oiled wards and seal the hushed casket of my soul. So part of what I wanted to bring uh, into the conversation by bringing this poem and I could have brought any of Keats's odes, um, was that I wanted to bring the idea of the ode in, the idea of addressing kind of an object or something abstract. There's a long tradition from Horace all the way back up through the present of addressing um, in a very particular kind of like uh, intentional way and kind of announcing it from the beginning by calling it an ode. And, and Keats did a lovely thing by dropping the ode and just calling it to sleep instead of ode to sleep. It's interesting how in the previous poem, the thing that was being addressed could never respond. So it was a certain kind of like um, um, apostrophe. But is that the right term? It It's not anaphora. It's, it's not apostrophe. Anaphora. It's apostrophe. Okay, okay yeah. So um, um, it was a certain kind of apostrophe, but the scenario is still like a very outward one. And it's it's sort of like, in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, silly sex comedy in some ways. And with this, one of the things that feels like it's shifted is that this is also an, an apostrophe. The thing that he's addressing can't respond. But here, there's no outward scene to be grabbed a hold of, except for the fact that um, the poem is constantly reinforcing the outer boundaries of consciousness by touching them at every possible place. But the result of that is to sort of emphasize this feeling of like a, a kind of like really intense, um, but completely dislocated sensitivity. Well, whereas in the, I think that's really helpful, Sean, because whereas in the sun rising poem, um, we were talking a lot about how the the kind of bodiness of it is partially because of the shifting um terms of engagement between the two points which is partially informed by the fact that the lover the beloved is kind of there and not there um part of the way this poem operates is by its kind of claustrophobia that the term the terms of engagement don't really change all that much it's still constantly addressing the same 
thing, just like the sun is the, the main um, point of address in the other poem. But here it's kind of a, a kind of an accrual or an intensifier or a slight revision in the service of kind of a revision in the service of kind of finding a more pointed uh, point of comparison or point of engagement rather than a revision in the hopes that like you might land on it eventually um, and kind of pulling from different different places. This one is a little bit more um, pointed in the way that it kind of revises itself. I think that the device in the poem where those two lines of argument that you were both making converge most strikingly is the word charities mm. or wait the amen ere thy poppy throws around my bed its lulling charities. That is the most concretized charities could possibly be. This is a profoundly abstract word. It's a very Latinate word, which in our German-Latinate hybrid English language shifts it even further to the abstract side. But because we have the verb throws around my bed, it's lulling charities, this completely abstract word is physically positioned and circumscribing the bed where the speaker is located. It's performing the link between the gesture of enclosing or circumscribing and the high level of abstraction on which consciousness exists in the poem. I think that's the line where those two vectors are converging. Yeah. It also feels like the specific way that this poem updates itself really hinges on that line. If the first part of the poem is kind of reminding you of how circumscribed you are as you go to sleep, then the second part of the poem uh, is is making you deeply uncomfortable with the experience of that. So if you do feel very sort of shrouded and surrounded and uh, enclosed by sleep, then what that allows is for curious conscience to lord its strength for darkness burrowing like a mole. And that's such a creepy way of putting it, but it really does work. And there, darkness is no longer synonymous with the coming of sleep. If in the first part of the poem, sleep isn't darkness per se, but there's something about sleep that resembles darkness because it's closing in, a it's closing in around you. But the the sort of um the sleight of hand is that here darkness can't be sleep because darkness is what empowers the sort of insidious and like sort of um um slippery slithery qualities of 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 conscience and that makes it even more strange that the kind of really sort of like if I say majestic, it's going to sound like I'm kidding, but there is something sort of crystalline and wonderful about it. Turn the key deftly in the oiled wards and seal the hushed casket of my soul. That is an experience of being poked and prodded, which is different from the burrowing like a mole of conscience. It's a different way of being sort of like, you know, penetrated by something or sort of like prodded into by something that is actually sort of stately and and sort of splendid in its way even though it's also very kind of stiff and dead at the same time how would you think of that stunning penultimate line in terms of 
levels of abstraction in terms of to what extent the elements of the poem are things and to what extent they're ideas. I'm, I'm having a lot of difficulty with that. It's not, it's not difficulty that's preventing me from enjoying it. It's difficulty that's helping me to enjoy it. Words, this, this may be from a, the perspective of someone who speaks 21st century English, but the words to me is very abstract compared to something like locks. It's, yeah. it's more a category of things that close contained spaces than a specific thing like a lock, whereas oiled is profoundly physical, and yet it's still slippery in a way that might make it, you know, woo-woo, as we would vulgarly say, like an abstraction. Uh, what would you do with that? I mean, I know for me, one of the things that I have pinging on words is... Um like a psych ward, like the actual walls of a hospital or the walls of a place where of a building or of a space where we've cordoned off people. Um, so that's part of what's activated for me as well as the verb to ward off or um, to ward against or, or that kind of functionality. And part of how that works for me is the way, and this might again be 21st century English working, but that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The way that Bauer, the difference between Bauer and Inbowered operates um, in the third line, because you do have the noun Bauer, but we're operating using the verb, but obviously we're supposed to kind of get both um, very present in that line, because you have to be able to kind of visualize what a Bauer would look like when you're Inbowered in a Bauer, the same way that you could be warded in a ward. Um, does that... I don't know. That was kind of how, part of how it was operating for me, and especially because, as Sean was so lovely pointing out, pointing out so lovely a minute ago, the poem uh, pivots in the center, but it's using a lot of, um, it's revising itself so that it's kind of folding um, or unfolding kind of symmetrically. So whereas, and he pointed this out using the darkness line. So when we say embowered from the light, it's the absence of darkness. We get the presence of darkness at the end. Um, right, rather than actually articulating darkness, we get the, the presence of darkness at the end. When we're embowered from the light, we're kind of protected from the light by the noun verb. You kind of get it again with words. Um, I don't know. So I, I carelessly OED'd words, and it seems like it's one of these words that was very busy before the 20th century. <laughs> um, and so it could mean like just a, a place where you'd put a person in the sense that Asia is referring to as like a psych ward and in a sense that I, I can imagine might have been something much more concrete and specific where now even psych ward refers to a whole set of rooms. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's, that's part of what's strange is even letting wards be what it will be. Like there's still a, like a last minute slip from wards to casket. Yeah. And so whatever, like, whether Ward, you know, I don't know what Ward meant in 1819, which I assume is when this was written, um, but, like, whether it meant a specific room or a whole set of rooms, whether it meant, like, a single guarded thing or a whole, like, network of guarded things, it's still, there's some kind of shift that's happening from that to a casket, uh, which is, like, definitely a very, very isolated and isolating box as opposed to a room. Well, you could you could argue that the mere fact that it's plural already gives us grounds to make that argument. I think. Yeah. 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 So it's a contracting move through the poem, right? Burrowing like a mole, 
borrowing like a mole that feels kind of general oiled wards that feels very specific but larger hushed casket of my soul we've gotten much much more claustrophobic by the end yeah yeah but it's interesting that the bed around my bed it's lulling charities um right is a ostensibly about the same size and shape as a casket um but doesn't feel as claustrophobic or as horrifying. i mean obviously because of connotation but it it does really play on that fact because it ultimately the logic operates on size i think or at least it is for me at the moment yeah but doesn't get interrupted in the middle and that does feel like it is something i it feels proverbial but i'm not sure when the when those associations when those associations are developed I'm thinking about how in Crime and Punishment, his bedroom is a casket or a coffin or something like that. And there is a, a sense that, you know, a bed and a coffin have something in common with each other, but also that there's something about darkness that always encloses around you, no matter what size you are, which I think Keats has a really special sensitivity to because Keats is so good at describing the experience of a kind of like heightened sensitivity, um, the the feeling that being in a dark room is like being, you know, sort of touched on every side in a way that could be good or could be bad is something that he seems uniquely gifted to describe for us. Bit of a sidebar before we do read another poem. I'm, I'm very interested in this question of if we had not OED'd that word Mm-hmm. And the association with something like a psych ward had been facing that risk of being rooted in 21st century English. I think there's a very strong case to be made that that wouldn't invalidate it as a reading of this poem that was written before that usage existed, because one could claim that the basic semantic architecture that enables the word uh, ward to be expanded to a psych ward, if, you know, in the notional etymological timeline where that's what happened, that metaphorical architecture was already there in the etymological nexus that the new sense is expanding out from. It's deploying resources that already existed in that node yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's because it's a case where the network of associations has actually pre- has actually remained pretty similar. So we all, you know, have psych wards, but we also have wardens, and a whole set of sort of ideas having to do with like strong boxes and and sort of safes and keeps and castles. I think that wouldn't be the case. There are some words where the association has flipped too far, like plastic that just doesn't mean the same thing for us that it meant for people a hundred years ago. And the, the flip is, is just too dramatic for us to backform it in the way that we can with something like wards. So the superhero plastic man is attempting to rescue the original etymological resources of this word, isn't he? I mean, That's who he's really saving. That's the damsel he's really saving. I don't know anything about the superhero Plastic Man, but I would assume that you're, if anyone would know about etymology and the superhero Plastic Man, it would be you. No, it self-evidently wouldn't be me. I've already <laughs> talked about my high school experience. I was too busy playing varsity athletics to know about things like this. <laughs> uh, good laugh line. <laughs> For the record, I was a varsity athlete, but it was on the crew team. I was a varsity athlete on the um, academic team squad. And I 
was a varsity athlete on the fencing team. We're so cool, team. <laughs> I let the record show that mine was the nerdiest. <laughs> Duly noted. Yeah. <laughs> so for our third poem, progressing through history and arriving somewhere quite different, but quite the same, we've got Sylvia Plath, the applicant. First, are you our sort of a person? Do you wear a glass eye, false teeth, or a crutch? A brace or a hook? Rubber breasts or a rubber crotch? Stitches to show something's missing? No. No. Then, how can we give you a thing? Stop crying. Open your hand. Empty? Empty. Here is a hand. To fill it and willing. To bring teacups and roll away headaches. And do whatever you tell it. Will you marry it? It is guaranteed to thumb shut your eyes at the end and dissolve of sorrow. We make new stock from the salt. I notice you are stark naked. How about this suit? Black and stiff, but not a bad fit. Will you marry it? It is waterproof, shatterproof, proof against fire and bombs through the roof. Believe me, they'll bury you in it. Now your head, excuse me, is empty. I have the ticket for that. Come here, sweetie, out of the closet. Well, what do you think of that? Naked as paper to start, but in twenty-five years she'll be silver, in fifty, gold, a living doll everywhere you look. It can sew, it can cook, it can talk, talk, talk. It works, there is nothing wrong with it. You have a hole, it's a poultice. You have an eye, it's an image. My boy, it's your last resort. Will you marry it? Marry it, marry it. So in terms of the paradigm we've been developing over the course of this episode, I think the most interesting thing about this poem is what kind of addressee the speaker is interacting with is revised drastically over the course of the poem. And specifically in terms of grammatical gender and culturally gendered expressions. The first tentpole for that, I'd say, is we have at the end of the first stanza, rubber breasts or a rubber crotch. You've got two different kinds of sexual mutilation. This could be applied to men or to women. It could be gendered either way. But then as you get deeper into the poem, you get marked expressions. You have this sort of marital framework developed. You have the cooking and sewing. You have the closing the eyes at the end. These are feminized gestures culturally to some extent. And then at the end, we have, you have a hole, it's a poultice. You have an eye, it's an image. This is a, a profoundly troubling and disquieting move in terms of the revision and transformation of the addressee because this is working on essential framework elements of the sort of er male consciousness you've got the hole and the poultice which look it's a family show but <laughs> is... This is low-level male mythology derived from sort of basic wetware. Then you've got an eye and an image. 
the uh, visual consciousness, visual subject in a Western con- in a Western context is gendered, but in it's figured here as being plugged up by an image in the way that a wound is by a poultice. That's not flattering this archetypical male psyche. Mm-hmm. It's it's profoundly disquieting it the way I read it. Yeah, and I also feel like there's a um she's kind of playing with the sort of like Freudian idea of like of penis envy, but she's she's sort of like messing around with it. I'm thinking about the moment early on where right after, you know, rubber breasts or rubber cross stitches to show something's missing, which is the kind of like cliche Freudian idea of a vagina as a failed penis. No, no, then how can we give you a thing? Which is sort of like turning the idea of penis envy into some like like comically literal situation where um oh you didn't get one because you weren't good enough which <laughs> i think calls attention to how part of the missed opportunity of that idea in freud is that it's adjacent to this sense that most people are estranged from their genitals just in general like across <laughs> all genders but he didn't get there instead he was like well surely like women must feel very stressed out about not having this penis and that seems to both like overestimate how enjoyable it is to have a penis and underestimate how potentially enjoyable it could be to have a clitoris and like um in a way that that just feels so typically freudian and platt's riffing on that feels so funny and clever but also horrified and also campy in a way that's so so wonderfully plath well and then especially because the way she like she kind of uh does that thing where she maxes herself out pretty early on right because the rubber breasts the rubber crotch and the stitches to know something's missing is like that's a huge power play that's like that's a big charge right at the beginning and then she moves she she scales it down to teacups and headaches in the third stanza and manages to make it i like the way that you said can't be sean because i think that's exactly the move so she kind of shocks you at the beginning but but basically rescues it with camp which is a really bizarre way to keep the momentum up with the uh indefinite articles at the beginning of the poem there's something very interesting going on when i was reading this the line i had the most difficulty with was the first one how do i pronounce that indefinite article on person are you our sort of a person that's difficult to just articulate and it's difficult to cognitively chew through until you've done some interpretive work on the poem as a whole but i think it's interacting with a thing which is in a similar sort of hazy state because it's how can we give you a thing in the sense of anything and in the phallic sense it's like both of these indefinite articles are wildly indefinite they're more indefinite than their grammatical nature alone can make them well but it's interesting because the next a is a hand and that feels very specific right that one just feels like it's it's general it feels like it could be any kind of like prosthetic hand almost but it's not as wildly um it's not as wildly kind of replaceable or as wildly substitutable um it's like oh here we go empty empty here's a hand like whatever uh the kind of generativeness has been is gone that opportunity is is pulled away um yeah the potential is kind of 
is is maxed out or has been lost a little bit and we're kind of working cobbling together or working with what's available we talk some more about these lines at the end that are obsessing me you have a hole it's a poultice you have an eye it's an image if we treat those as being addressed to a specifically male addressee then it's applying the same sort of attack that conrad applies to the machine in the jungle you have a hole attaching that to the visual subjectivity you have an eye it's an image but that's not really the way the addressee is working at this point in the poem is it it's, it's not that simple so how do we approach those two lines in terms of this poem as a poem of address i think part of it is that the referent for it has deliberately been made hard to trace back so I'm thinking that the previous stanza says, but in 25 years, she'll be silver. In 50, gold, a living doll, everywhere you look. Now, in those sentences, the referent is a woman and is referred to as she, but has already turned into a doll. And then in the next sentence, it says, it can sew, it can cook, it can talk, 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 which is sort of playing on like a kind of like terrible 1950s advertisement for a toy but it's become an it. And then it says, it works. There's nothing wrong with it. You have a hole, it's a poultice. You have an eye, it's an image. My boy, it's your last resort. Will you marry it, marry it, marry it? And it feels like one of the weird things that's happening there is the kind of like fantasy, like sex partner wife has turned into an object, but in turning into an object, it's also become the sort of solution to all of your problems. And what she does in a really quick way is to, uh, I think, as you're suggesting, create this kind of like mini sex panic for the addressee, where the addressee knows that he has a problem that has to be solved by the woman being there. And it's not the Freudian scenario of like, the vagina has to be solved by a penis, which is kind of, you know, Freud's whole, whole deal about women. <laughs> it's like, well, you have any number of problems and you know that you have these problems because you have to get married young man and young man it might be that you have a hole and your wife will be a poultice or it might be that you have an eye and your wife will be an image but the the weird thing about this is that because it's focusing on the relationship between the addressee who ends up being a, a kind of like pathetic boy but a boy nonetheless and the addressee who is like feminine but turned into an object and because of that an it the number of possible relationships is seems like it's become unlimited but it's also kind of stuck you know well what i think is sticking it or circumscribing it the way i read the poem is we've got these two relationships stacked on top of each other that sort of attempt to parallel each other or rather the reader is naturally inclined to put them in parallel but the relationship between a hole and a poultice is self-evident to the reader the relationship between an eye and an image is not self-evident but by putting the one next to another we're invited to treat it as an analogy that image is to eye as poultice is to whole. 
And that's such a hornet's nest because you've got the, the whole is figured as, as a entity to be penetrated. The eye is generally reaching out to an image, but it's not functioning that way here. We've got a, uh, an eye being solved by an image or healed or soothed maybe right actually it's funny you say the eye reaches out to the image um so one of the things i play around with uh when i'm working on my academic work is the way that we've tried the way that writers have tried to articulate how sight works and there's this long tradition where we believe that reaching out of the eye the way we we got images into our brains was a bunch of little hooks coming out of our eyes and then pulling them back in um, but that's not how the eye works. Light comes into the eye. It gets penetrated. It is a hole. Um, so in that way, um, it does actually work kind of in parallel. Last yeah, time. no, that sounds right. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. It's still that's not that. logical. Your your point still stands. But actually, that feels even more Plathian to me, frankly, Uh that it works, the logic works in parallel, but it doesn't immediately advertise itself as parallel. Um, and it invites you to sort of evaluate the logic that it's clashing with. Yeah. And it kind of actually works. I don't know. The, the one stanza we haven't spent any time with actually is um, the proof stanza, yeah. um, which kind of has a similar thing that goes on right it is waterproof shatterproof proof against fire and bombs through the roof believe me they'll bury you in it um right it's this thing that's indestructible and then with bombs through the roof and something's getting destroyed but it's kind of unclear what's being destroyed and then the logic actually just ignores the whole thing about this indestructible object and goes back to the suit how about the suit black and stiff but not a bad fit Will you marry it? It is waterproof, shatterproof, proof against fire and bombs through the roof. Believe me, they'll bury you in it. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. It's interesting that the bombs through the roof is potentially penetrative if you think about it very abstractly, but those other images aren't. Yeah, inherently not. Yeah. So if you were to try to read it in that way you would have to deal with the idea of being buried in it there's a there's a confining and protection thing going on there simultaneously right come here sweetie out of the closet yeah right and then you've got this eye being i'll say resolved by an image to say it as abstractly as possible but maybe maybe protected by an image as well even though as you as you rightly Remind us when you're encountering an image, your eye is indeed being penetrated by the image. There's a refuge from that reality being offered here. There's a distinction to be drawn maybe between uh, image and just visual data. And that's where the uh, phantasmagorical element comes in. You know, the you could, you could read this as a sort of pornographic fantasy if you cared to. Hmm. Interesting. I can't. Yeah, you definitely could, but it's funny. I yeah, you definitely could. But the porno, the pornographic element to this poem, obviously. I mean, obviously, there are elements that are pointing towards towards like sexual encounters. I'm not saying that, but it doesn't feel pornographic to me. 
Um, and why is that? Yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm worried about here. That's what I'm trying to get to grips with. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sean. It might probably be that like those dynamics feel really present at the beginning and the end, but not in the middle. <clears throat> that's a big part of it. Um, is it doesn't feel like the whole poem is carrying that through, which also seems like part of the point that yeah, you know. Could we tack back to? this poem as a poem of address then what is it about this poem's poetic argument or its effect on the reader's consciousness that specifically works because it's a poem of address so i liked where we were starting i think you started with it isaac talking about how um the addressee sort of changes it's the same addressee ostensibly um but that's a new trick so the sun rising, it's very consistently the sun the whole way through, and the way that the sun is being addressed changes. And to sleep, it's basically an intensification of a, the kind of similar type of address to the same addressee. But this is interesting because it feels like the addressee kind of shifts, um, even though it's also there's, – there's lots of painstaking work being done to let us know it is the same addressee, but it's almost like the addressee is kind of – the addressee also changes – in this weird way um, because the addressee is so amorphous. Well, it feels like the nature of the addressee is really being changed by address that like, and I, one of the places where I see that is like, I think we've talked about how there's this kind of like de-sexing, violent unsexing in the first two stanzas where, you know, rubber breasts or rubber crotch stitches to show something's missing. And then what's replaced is it says, open your hand, empty, empty. Here is a hand to fill it and willing to bring teacups and roll away headaches and do whatever you tell it. Will you marry it? So the first it is the hand of the addressee, which is kind of like one way you could read that is um, the sort of, I mean, like if we're going to like trace the pornographic reading of it, that would be like autoeroticism. The hand is a sort of substitute lover. But what winds up weirdly happening is that that immediately becomes to fill it and willing to bring teacups and roll away headaches and do whatever you tell it. Um, that the nature of the relationship is one that is like, like really sort of um, exaggeratedly sexless, still domestic, but in a way that's like very unerotic. And it feels like over the course of the middle stanzas, um, the, um, the relationship between the addressee and the speaker becomes incredibly opaque but lots of things are being foisted onto the addressee. And that feels really different from the other two poems that we've seen that the, the address winds up having this sort of dominating presence or power. And yet in a way that doesn't actually get us any insight into who the speaker is or, you know, what kind of entity the speaker is even. I think that's essential to why this poem works. Yes. The, phrase that Anastasia used that I thought was very memorable was the painstaking work that's put into establishing that all of these variations and contradictions and elaborations all have to be fit into this category of addressee. It's as if the framework of having these two distinct entities in the poem and everything in the poem needing to be attributed or ascribed to one or the other enables you to sort of 
gather these seemingly contradictory things into one category. It's the fact that you've got these two binary poles in the poem because it's a poem of address that enables you to have this sort of two pounds of TNT in a one pound bag effect where you've got these mutually exclusive ideas being circumscribed together. You've got this lump of uranium that's got electrons that its lattice can't contain that have to fly off. Isaac's metaphors are going to get scarier and scarier if we let this, if we let this keep going. <laughs> yeah, when, I, when I bring like, out the radiation. Like a bunch of knives out. flying out of a dragon. <laughs> a dragon is made of radiation. Against fires and bombs through the roof. Believe me. <laughs> he hid Coriolanus like a planet. <laughs> Are we talking about a fission dragon or a fusion dragon here, though? Oh Both. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right. I think that was devolution, team. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's it. We're not going to get... We're not coming back from that. No. <laughs> Do we have any parting shots about poems of address? Any dragons that we need to slay? Not really. <laughs> well... I guess that's it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> He's just gonna read for the <laughs>